Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West, and it's just me, just Alex again. Um, and we wanted to do a little bit more bonus content. Um, so again, uh, Andrea's taken this one off because how many people really need to see? I still know what you did last summer, except for me and you listening. Um, it was such, we got such fantastic feedback from uh, the commentary I did um, a few weeks ago that we wanted to continue it as I threatened to do in that commentary. Um, so I'm back. We're going to do the sequel, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, um, which came out the following year. And we're going to dive in. There's a lot of stuff to talk about in this film. Um, there is so much stuff in this film that I think about on maybe not a daily basis, but definitely a weekly one. Um, and I'm excited to rewatch it because, again, I, I haven't sat down and rewatched the whole thing since my book, um, the 1990s teen horror cycle, plug, 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 uh, came out. So um, I have a deep affinity for this film. I think I actually enjoyed this film more than the original. Um, and we'll talk about the reasons why, because they're very very stupid reasons. Um, but so uh, for ourselves here today, I have the film, it's queued up on my computer. Um, and it's it's just about to hit the Columbia logo. So uh, I've got it paused, we're gonna do a quick countdown. Um, and I would recommend you turn your audio on your uh, TV or computer off for the film, uh, because you'll probably hear a little bit of the back <laughs> audio feed uh, for me watching it right now. I'm going to take a little sip of water. It's a little ASMR for all you fans there. And um, if you are enjoying these commentaries, uh, do consider checking out our Patreon. Uh, Andrea and I do commentaries together <laughs> on, on uh, films that our patrons choose. We, we put up a vote and it's pretty fun and we've done some really great ones and there's more to come. Plus lots more amazing content on there. But this one, this is still main feed, bonus, summer, COVID is weird. Um, we're fighting for civil rights. Uh, if you need to take a bit of time out and watch, I still know what you did last summer. We're in this together. We're going to do this together, my friends. Okay. Film is paused. The bright sparkling lights of the Columbia logo are about to show the, the lady with the thing. Okay. I'm going to count this down. So three, two, one, play. There we go. Let's turn that. Um, so yeah, this came out shortly after the uh, success of the original film, um, and obviously Kevin Williamson, as we're about to see, had nothing to do with this one. Uh, Dimension and Miramax had locked him into um, uh, all of the Scream sequels and the faculty and everything else he was doing over there. It was some ghost rewrites on Halloween H2O. Uh, so he was uh, indisposed. So we're getting another creative team involved here. And um, while I do think this film is a lot of fun, it also is going to present us with some super strange problematic elements um, that we'll talk about because uh, Julie and Ray need to take accountability. I, I love, I love a recap of the first film just told in like scary audio. 
Not enough people do that. You know, I also like to wear platform heels when I go to church. Um, there's, again, we're going to hit so many great 90s, late 90s fashion moments. And, and um, as, as talked about previously on the other film, it's, it's, this is when I was really coming of age when this film came out. So it was always like, is this what's cool? Is this what I should have? Um, God, I mean, they love to put her in a cardigan. So here in this scene, we have, you know, um, Julie admitting that they didn't tell anyone. There was no, um, you know, they didn't say, hey, we were part of this accident, which was kind of not our fault. And, um, you know, this person killed all our friends. They just went like, shit, we don't know what the hell happened. How weird that this fisherman was clearly attacking this very specific group of friends. Um, and, uh, oh, no, it was an accident. So by not, I guess, I don't know if it would be unburdening herself to, you know, state the facts out loud in real life, uh, Julie has kind of repressed and re-traumatized herself, as we're going to see throughout this film. So much of this film is, you know, Julie being scared of almost everything and her friends trying to pull her out of it um, to see if anything could happen, anything good could come of it. But they, she can't let it happen because she can't. She can't speak the truth. That's what she needs to do. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in, like, secrets make you sick. And perhaps I, I, I learned it from this film, you know? So maybe there is some good that comes out of this film at a much deeper spiritual level. Um, but I think... Uh, <laughs> but bam! She does have a great scream. Yeah, political science, jokes aside, is actually pretty interesting. Um, and here um, we're going to meet Will, or as I like to call him, not Scott Foley. Uh, look at their ill-fitting tops. Just the light bag on everything. I think the light bag on Julie on that that sweater uh, depicts that. Oh, and the, the fucking hems of the sleeves up by her knuckles. It just denotes that she's you know clearly traumatized, and and you know Will looks a little goofy. <laughs> I love that she like just realized that of like July 4th. Like it's not like April 17th, you know, something that you could 
potentially forget July 4th. It's a national holiday. And as we have previously discussed on these commentaries, it is the fishermen's holidays where teenagers get held accountable. And in this one, young adults as well. But no, look, she's fine. She's she's laughing. She's fine. But is she? Not on the fisherman's holiday. Don't touch his face. I have many male friends. I've never once touched their face. Oh my god, how did he get in there? He's hiding behind a fucking, like, pole? No, who's that guy? I'm just spying on you, don't worry. Also, but to be fair, I think this is like the beefcakiest, hottest that Freddie Prince looks in his career, maybe? Yeah, just come back and, you know, um, where your best friend was murdered. Um, come back. Don't worry about it. Their, uh, their priorities just don't align. Ugh. Sometimes, Julie, you just gotta let him walk away into the pop-up basketball game that's happening. Hey, you know what, Julie? Don't beat yourself up. It's hard to talk about your feelings. So I'm going to assume um, in this film, oh, all the locks, pepper spray, moody 90s female chanteurs. Apologies, I can't actually identify who the singer is or the band, but um, it sounds, I want to say Portishead, but it's not. Anyway, um, so I'm going to assume that she's probably in second year university um, at this point, second year college, and... My God, what a big apartment and what a full fridge for a second-year university student. Um, just, yeah, you just take that bottle of pop and that bag of chips to bed. Oh, no, yep, look at that photo of your friend from the day she died that you have framed next to your bedside table. What this film is going to do, and in, in so much, often very clumsy ways, it's going to try and talk about PTSD, um, and in many ways, I think it does, you know, a valiant attempt at it. Oh, yep. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm angry. I'm going to take my ball of pop and just crawl into bed. It's great. I love it. I need to do more of that. Um, ooh. Um, but there's, it talks about PTSD in a rather clumsy way, maybe not in the most subtle or most articulate way, but it, it's doing it, and I do give it props. And in my book, I do talk about how PTSD factors into um, the film overall and in this, you know, little <laughs> franchise. There's just, oh, God, it's great.
Again, how big is this apartment? How many hallways? Also, I don't want to be weird about this, but like, ugh, who takes a nap in their bra? I mean, I guess if she was really tired, but if I was doing that, like, fuck my life, chips to bed, bra comes off. Bra is like one of the first things that comes off and like in my t-shirt and I'm just hanging loose and it's great. absolutely stab first and ask questions later, Julie. It's a great method. No more PTSD. Yeah. Hi, Brandy. Here we're going to get into the trope of the um, black best friend here portrayed by Brandy. Um, and I really like Brandy in this film. It's, it's a shame that it's just kind of falling into that, you know, trope again that you see a lot, particularly in, you know, well, film in general, to be really fucking honest. Um, but often, you know, uh, this film here, I still know, does it. Scream 2 does it, where um, they both receive criticism for being very white very 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 white in the original films and now of course in the sequel they seek to diversify but in diversifying which is always a good thing you know you always learn you always you know try to be more progressive it's it's relegating black characters to kind of being just an offshoot of the white character uh, or characters whichever the case may be and they rarely have a lot to do outside of supporting the white main character. Um, there is, um, I'm gonna make a note for myself to put it in the show notes to this, uh, the amazing Ashley Blackwell, who I'm sure you all know, um, she's the brilliant mind behind Graveyard Shift Sisters, uh, was, you know, big part of the documentary Horror Noir. Um, she um, created this, um, she utilized this phrase in, in one of the articles that I cite in my book, um, referring to you know these kind of black offshoot characters as like pod people uh, they don't have you know family interests things going on outside of the white characters narrative and so it feels it's again it's a very tokenizing thing um and here we have Mackay Pfeiffer uh he's great I really I really like him and for having kind of like a kind of shitty nothing part he He's just one of those people, every time I see him in something, there's so much screen presence. Um, and Brandy's fun. Oh, there's Will.
so another another supporting character we should talk about in this film is uh, Julie's hairstyle because we talked about it in the first one. You know when she's depressed and it's all kind of scraggly and, and greasy, uh, denoting her upsetness with life. Um, and here we've got her her club look. Uh, she has. I'm going to hazard a guest here. I'm going to say teased and hairsprayed the roots, and then like undercurled the ends. It's a real kind of Rachel from Friends look. And in this 1998-99 period, uh, that was that was big. I remember trying to get that haircut. I mean, who who didn't want to be Jennifer Aniston? Where'd he go? Did I tease my hair for this? Also, what is this music? It sounds like there's like three songs playing at once on top of the horror score that likes to enter in. So we are in like a cacophony of sound, which you know, maybe this is the inner representation of Julie's mindset. So how I kind of like to think about this scene is I think when she was looking up and she saw the fisherman, I think that was, you know, maybe Will or, you know, fucking with her, let's say. And then, uh, <laughs> and then she turned around just there and it was, that was an actual, like, um, product of her PTSD having been triggered by seeing perhaps the real fisherman there or a version of him. Um, and, and I think this film does a lot to kind of play with, yes, there's something being re- there's something real here. As the film will prove, she's being gaslit uh, pretty extensively. And then, um, you know, then we also see the ongoing product of her trauma manifesting itself on screen. And for anyone who is maybe less familiar, PTSD refers to post-traumatic stress syndrome. And that is where a um, traumatic event happens. And if you haven't fully processed it or have had trouble processing it or are still traumatized by it, it can often come back to haunt you in many different ways. Um, you know, a kind of really big contemporary example was uh, the soldiers returning from Vietnam So in this case, we're seeing Julie, you know, manifest itself in visions, paranoia, um, dreams, all of those things, which are all very real things that people who suffer with PTSD have. And yes, you can also have moments where things are fine, but then it tends to come back and bite you in the ass. Are they going to win a fucking trip? Oh my God. Capital of Brazil. What is it, Carla? And here we have... Julie holding on like the life to this apple. Also, when we think of the apple, do we not think of Eve's biting of the uh, forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge as an apple? (gasps) Oh my god, how convenient! They got it right based on the coffee. I 
again, I give it, I give it to um, the killers who came up with this. Uh, really banking on Carla being a good person. Oh, wait, hang on. We have to. Oh. Okay, this scene I love. I love this song, and Freddie's Freddie's keeping it tight. Look at that a little greasy. Into it. Oh, oh, that open Henley. Hello. Also, yeah. So let's talk about this song. Um, a song, How Do I Deal, by Jennifer Love Hewitt. And here we have John Hawks, who would go on to actually have a career as an actor <laughs> in a very strange small part. Um, so, yeah, you heard a little clip of that song. Um, I remember that song from when this film came out. And there was a video of, you know, moody Jennifer Love Hewitt, again, with her club hair and her little cami jumping up and down and, and little images from the film being shown. And I have to say, I genuinely like that song it's it exists on at least five of my spotify playlists and um yeah it's an interesting thing because um i talk a lot in the book about oh my god right just get it the fuck together (laughs) there's so much amazing stuff happening in this film okay so in my book i talk a lot about um uh the marketing power of teenage girls or the consumer power of teenage girls, especially in the 90s, they were being identified and had been previously in the 80s um, as, you know, a big marketing force because, you know, you get allowance, you don't have to spend it on rent, you weren't spending it on cell phones back then necessarily. So you could um, have a lot of disposable income. So like, I certainly know for me, I was going to the movies, I was buying CDs, I was buying clothes, starting to get into makeup. Um, I, I found a lot of ways to spend my money very quickly because there's a lot of things out there telling teenage girls and preteen girls how they should be and women, you know, God, but I'm not getting off on a rant here. All that to say, um, here, what we have is the kind of star power branding of certain actors um and jennifer love hewitt as we will hear throughout the film has i think an okay singing voice she's not you know um christina aguilera but she's fine oh a ring it's absolutely fine to get engaged when you're like 20 21 great anyway i just got in a fight with her but i should still totally propose um Anyway, uh, this movie's so silly. Um, but yeah, so we have the kind of star power of Jennifer Love Hewitt. So she is the star of a film, star of two films now. Uh, she was a pretty big supporting role on Party of Five. And then she was trying to launch a singing career. Um, I remember she had a single, uh, I think it was called Bare Naked. Like, I'm bare naked and I just can't take it. I'm as bad a good a singer as these guys. And what I also found interesting is, I like to think she was just too expensive and they couldn't afford for her to do it, um, is that you have Brandy in this film, a bona fide pop star um, with a ton of albums, you know, well, she had a few albums before this film and would go on to release more. um, And so they didn't get her to do a single. I'm choosing to believe for my own nostalgic love of this film was that she was just basically like, sure, I'll do a song, but you have to pay me 
all of this money, which I deserve. And they were like, oh no, we can't afford that. Jennifer, <laughs> here's that money. Will you do it? And she wanted to break through and, and singing. And so she agreed to it. Anyway, that is my own like fanfic about music in this movie. Um, and I'm not going to say, if you haven't listened to How Do I Deal by Jennifer Love Hewitt, cue it up, watch the video, stream it wherever you want. Um, it's great. It's, it's a fun little pop song. And here we have Ray. I love a bad, cautious walk. Acting is hard. I, I will say that. Acting is not easy, especially when you're tasked with doing something simple like, hey, Freddy, um, you're going to see this corpse and you're going to walk towards it. And you're not quite sure what it is because you've lived your character's life. Like there's scary things happening to you. But God, he, Freddie Prince is not, uh, he's not a strong walker. Oh my God, what is it, Ray? <gasps> now I'm in Maniac! Watch out! That's a pretty solid kill. Like, that's a pretty, it's, it's a good kill. And, you know, I like to say that because, you know, these films, I'm sure as we all know, like to get a lot of flack for being, you know, not as bloody or scary as, say, the 80s slashers. And, you know, they're not. They were trying to appeal to a very teen audience, trying to get them to see it in theaters, which they did. These films made money. Um, what was that? See, running is hard. Kablooey! Somersault! Oh. God, look at those chunky heels. I feel bad for whoever told Julie, like, you know, it'd be a great color on you. Off-white. How about like a shade of milk that's gone off? So don't, Carla. Yeah. Oh, I will. I don't know. And again, this is Carla's trip. She won the tickets. So, Julie, suck it up. I feel like there's like seven songs that came out in this period that all sound like this one. the harsh daylight it's very clear that will is clearly part of the adult learning 
school of that university. <gasps> and now we get Estero. Oh, I totally fucking had this album. Um, uh, Estero, for anyone who does not know, uh, is a Canadian uh, singer-songwriter, and she's super cool. Um, she was kind of like a slightly edgy chanteuse when I, uh, when I again, when I was in my like preteen, early teenage years, and um, uh, the song "That Girl." So good. Mwah. Chef's kiss. I feel like this film has just stocked, like stacked itself with all these like odd little character pieces. Like that captain. That captain should have never had that many like lines. And I feel like he was just ad-libbing. And they were like, this is great. Season's almost over, but they just got there. You know, I've never been to a like a resort or an all-inclusive. I would like to go one of these days. It does, you know, but for like a nice one that isn't horrible to its workers, if one of those exists. Actually, alternate theory. I would totally go to this one. I go to like an all-inclusive resort where um, there's like a murderer after you. And hi, Jack Black. So I'm like 99% sure I actually saw this in theaters. Again, probably got one of my parents to take me. And, um, you know, if you had told me then that someone in this film is going to be like an A-list star um, with multiple huge hits under their belts, I probably wouldn't not have guessed Jack Black. God, look at that fucking wig. Whatever they stuck on Jack Black's head is just... It looks like a prop from arachnophobia. I don't know what it is. That's scary. Jeffrey Combs. Hi, fella. 
course of um, Reanimator and um, Star Trek Next Generation, a uh, ton of genre cred that courses through his veins, and he is fantastic. He is um, uh, he is a great actor. He, I, I think, a lot of the stuff that I kind of knew him as was very like hammy. I think and a bit over the top. Again, I, I always think of Reanimator. Um, which is a great movie, and he's fantastic in it. And then a few... Oh, God. What are we looking at now? Oh, my God. Something, like, almost, like, six years ago. I was down in Boston um, visiting a friend of ours. Um, I'm sure some of you might know her. Uh, Izzy Lee. She's a genre filmmaker, and she's really cool and really nice. And um, I always wanted to go to Boston, so I went and stayed with her and her husband for a bit, which was lovely. And uh, she was producing, um, or she actually, I think, brought to Boston um, Jeffrey Combs' one-man show about Edgar Allan Poe. And um, I was in, I was doing my horror stuff at this time, obviously, and was you know happily doing that. And I think, as many of you know, my background is in theater. And when I finished my MA, I was like, fuck theater I don't want to do it no one goes to see it it's all done like I just had too much of it um and I still feel a bit like that and I can probably count the amount of theater shows I've gone to see on maybe one hand uh since I finished my master's about 10 years ago um but this piece was absolutely wonderful if you ever get a chance if if you know we get a vaccine and the world goes back to normal and Jeffrey Combs is coming to your city or town and doing his one-man show about Edgar Allan Poe um Highly, highly recommend checking it out. It is excellent. And I think it's a, one of those like nice lean, like 60 minutes that really goes by um, at a good pace. Because sometimes those one person shows, <gasps> they are death. Anyway, they've checked into the hotel. I'm sorry. Um, and, uh, and of course, it's rainy season. Absolutely not. Haunted. <sighs> yeah, see, oh, this is where it gets complicated. You can't stick to your friend if she's seen someone, or even if she's not seen someone. Kind of creepy guy just puts his arm up by her face. Oh, father's eye. If I get too handsy, you can throw something at me. It sounds great. That sounds like exactly the kind of um, sleeping relationship you'd want to have. Doctor, how many times did he somersault to safety? Uh, BMW, la-di-da. This scene makes me want to rewatch ER. I used to really like ER. 
<laughs> this is what healthcare in America has come to. I have to flee through a window lest my like boating job not cover my health insurance. Honestly, like, okay, murder that's about to happen aside. This actually seems, oh, hi, Jennifer Esposito. Um, this actually seems like kind of a perfect vacation to me. If I went with a couple friends and it was like, we had a cute hotel to ourselves. I mean, we'd probably just kind of pretend like we were in The Shining the whole time, but um, I like this like Lady Lloyd, Jennifer Esposito. No. I would talk to her all night. She seems great. Like, I'm not joking, I would. Oh my god, look at Jay Love's outfit! The clunkiest heels in the world. A little, like, strappy dress. The hair up with the little fucking butterfly clips. And Brandy's pants with that kind of, like, um would you call that where it kind of like laces up lace up i don't know it's all very it, this is all again we're creating my sense memories back to my childhood where i was like oh my god i wish i had that dress and i fucked around with butter clips butterfly clips those little like glittery things you would stick in your hair i was convinced and occasionally i do get my hair to kind of look like that in a high pony it's all very exciting If I drank a dark and stormy when I was 20, yeah. <gasps> Karaoke. No, it's not for me, iconic pop star Brandy. This is for my friend who I'm indebted to for some reason. And it's all about her. I don't want it. Oh gosh, how awkward would it be if she's actually kind of a good singer? Oh, she's so embarrassed. Oh, she's just so embarrassed. Sorry, I find this suit very silly, like most of this film. Um, oh. 
Zing! And there we have a little self-referential moment. And would it be a 90s slasher if it wasn't? I still know. Her scared face looks like a baby. Like, she kind of pushes her lips out and stuff. And she's beautiful. Like, everyone in this film is very attractive. It's, you know, I'm not trying to disparage anyone's looks. It's just... Acting seems like it's hard for her. Like, they're just to work. She's working hard in every scene. And I appreciate that. I, I'm not angry at that. Um, but she's... She's really pushing a lot of stuff in this, so. Um, the pouty lips, the darting eyes. Like, look at her, she's pushing that bottom lip out. Oh my god, oh my god, it's a liner. Julie, it's like, not like everyone has cell phones. It's not like when someone writes me a letter now or I get something in the mail and I'm like, oh my god, who's gonna kill me? Why they just call me or email me or text me, ideally? They have put him in the baggiest clothes imaginable. Jesus, Julie, just put out. <laughs> Who does this? And, and is this like a weird, like, foreplay thing? Like, I'm going to jump on the bed and you're going to be in the middle of it and it's going to be hot because you're going to be scared that I accidentally step on you.
I do like that this film kind of ties back to um, uh, a lot of the set pieces of the original film, particularly around boating, around like water. It makes a lot of sense for the killer to be, <laughs> he's so funny, um, uh, uh, the fisherman. Again, there's just a kind of random appropriateness to it, which uh, is something the next film, I'll always know what you did last summer, struggles with. Oh my god, his voice is so annoying. I mean, you could help Jack Black, honestly. Like, help him. is where this film kind of becomes I mean I'm going to say less intricate than the original which I mean the but um, in the original film you had there were so many elements to it there was like the Missy storyline the the boyfriend storyline that um, like all of these things that you know they had to circle back to what was the original debt they real you know the the group of friends realizing that um, the death that was kind of at the center of all of this was not really the one that they caused, but it was one that preceded it. Um, and that actually, I think, makes it really like twisty-turny, and Scream does that very well as well. Um, and then in this one, we've got a much more straightforward slasher setup, and this is something that the 90s slashers do quite a bit, particularly the few franchises that do become franchises, and I would say this is one of them, um, where it's not necessarily about the killer targeting a new group of people each time that they uh, that the film comes around. It's... Um, it's this original group that is traumatized and then re-traumatized like every single time. And often the kind of visage of the killer will remain the same, but there'll, there'll be a new element added to the killer. Uh, I, like in Scream, um, you know, we see Ghostface in every Scream movie, but it changes who it is each and every time, you know, whether it's two people, one person, what have you. Uh, there are different motives for getting at this kind of core group of people. And in this franchise, certainly for these two films, the carryovers are Ray and Julie. So it, it's kind of all centering around their link to their original crime. Um, which is, again, kind of tenuous at best. I mean, if anything, I think, what was his name? Barry, Ryan Felipe. He was the true monster. And so now we have the fisherman. He's out. He's about. He's just killing people. He's killing people who are there. And um, just simply so that 
he can create panic, confusion, and terror in his ultimate goal, um, having thought he already dispatched with Ray. See, this is where it's like they put Will in all the baggiest stuff, but he is cut. I mean, not like Mackay Pfeiffer, but not bad. Or just give up. Yeah, he's he's like a weird uh this Will guy is, is like a cross between Scott Foley and James um Marsden. Here we have another sequence of Julie just kind of wandering around a large room and opening doors and the music cues kind of swelling possibly a little bit too often. And I, and I think this is where some fans or just fans of the horror genre get a bit frustrated because they're, um, these, they, these are, these scenes are a bit teasing, like, come on. But to be fair, if we didn't have these scenes, this film would be like 60 minutes long. <gasps> Sorry, I can't help it. It's just funny. 
So now that they're on the island and they are, you know, we kind of know that there is, you know, the real fisherman or, you know, whomever he is, is out there doing his thing. Um, and, you know, now we, we had that knowledge that um, Julie, who is, um, as we've learned, legitimately suffering from PTSD through the uh, opening scene in the church, is also now having her sanity questioned. There is a a kind of uh, cat and mouse game that they're playing with her because um, yes, they want to attack her, but they also want to scare her and they want to make her doubt herself. Um, uh oh. And that kind of effort to make her unreliable um, or traumatized or, you know, whatever it is, um, to basically have others cast doubt on her is to isolate this character, as we were about to see. <gasps> Where is it? I'll be able to talk to him if he's dead. I like how this is kind of the opposite and antithesis of the um, um, the Shining uh, or the Overlook Hotel, which is so enwrapped in snow and isolation. And here it's like the tropical hurricane is isolating them. I mean, like, this is also a very tokenized representation here that um, is, is a red herring. So it's, um, I don't love it. Wish it wasn't in here. Though I do like this actor.
Oh no, inviting and consuming drugs. I do. I think the fisherman is a really interesting killer. Like the, the backstory is kind of interesting. Also, the hook is you know used to good effect. Um, I do also love the idea of seeing like a New England fisherman in um, a beach resort. Here we are back with Ray, who, having fled the hospital, seems to be doing just fine. And, uh, oh, little Mark Boone Jr. Always, always a pleasure to see him pop up in something. Um, Fine. Don't worry about gun violence, kids. See, if you show up at a pawn shop and you're really beaten up and you seem kind of wild-eyed and desperate, you can just take a gun. Also, if he asks you to load it, I'm going to say that's a strong no. Ugh, again, sleeping in a bra, Julie. And here we have the final girl kind of self-doubt. Um, and, and I think this kind of really plays into some of the stuff I identify in the book about uh, the final girls in this cycle of 90s teen horror often being the site of their own horror, um, you know, whether through direct or indirect cause, they have some part in it that they cannot escape because it is intrinsic to them. Um, 
So Julie, in this case, is part of the original accident that has led all of these things to happen, and she's having trouble escaping it, and I think the film very strongly indicates that part of it is because she can't admit to it. She's not really spoken about it, except for outside of the original group of friends. Um, Sydney Prescott in the Scream films, obviously there are ties to her mother and her family that she doesn't quite understand. Um, And then in Urban Legend, again, you know, there you have a main character who is responsible for, or partially responsible for an accident that um, causes so much trauma and pain. Just sadly walking on the Stairmaster. It's just, it's hard. Do we need the lingering shots of her body? No. Am I curious about how small her feet are? A little bit. Oh, Walkman. I'm pretty sure that's a Walkman. It looks chunky. But again, 1998. Would I have had a Discman? Maybe not. No, but Walkman. I love it. It's great. Maybe it'll spit out her shoes from home. Or a body. And so now we have Carla as part of the trauma and fear. Um, And now they see it.
little zip tie. Just destroying, just destroying this resort. You know what I always wonder? <laughs> I, um, oh my God. <laughs> Why don't they just unplug it? You can kind of see a plug behind Jennifer Love Hewitt. The, um, the fishermen kind of becoming very active in a very short period of time where um, our beloved characters are now in complete crisis. And actually here we get the... Um, the admission that Carla does know. She has some understanding of the trauma. again we have her essential privilege there there's I think this kind of interesting dichotomy within this film that I don't think this film is subtle enough to really grapple with which is that um, Julie through her trauma and I guess a bit to you know as we see Ray here grappling with it but Ray is very much of the idea of like 
come back, come back to our hometown, hometown, come, you know, to the Croker Festival again. And, you know, we will live like have these simple lives because of my job. Uh Oh, he's got the pills. Um, <laughs> and, and you know what, maybe this this film is about the start of, you know, the white opiate epidemic. It could be. Um, but yeah, we have Julie, um, Ray kind of wanting to be part of that life again because of his job. He's tied there. He's got his boat. That's his career. Um, and then Julie, who's trying to kind of forge a new path, but is, you know, so crippled by PTSD that she actually can't, um, or she's severely limited in her ability to kind of move forward. And, um, I think it it creates a lot of, um, tension that is really, palpable because she definitely feels like she is you know trapped and in doing so she traps other people um most notably in this film tyrell and carla but anyone who is in essence comes into contact with her is either out to get her or is has the very strong possibility of becoming a victim of the fisherman and how do we avoid the fishermen, we don't keep secrets. She was looking for that at the jacuzzi. I haven't brushed my teeth in days. That's Julie, not me. I brushed my teeth this morning. Just a little, little lightning crash to uh, underscore that. So if this were me, you know, and feel free to comment with, with what you would do if you were in this situation. If you were, you know, trapped with a couple friends on an island in this resort and people were dying. Oh, God. And this is when they put her in the worst white blouse ever. Anyway, what would you do? My instinct would be to discern a relatively safe location and barricade myself in and wait for it, like wait this whole thing out. Um, because the guy mentioned there would be one in a, another boat coming back in a couple of days after the storm passes. So if you can get any food together and, um, you know, wait it out essentially, but barricade yourself in. Uh-oh. So I really want to talk about her blouse in this film um, or in this sequence. Okay. So look at it. It's this white blouse and it's just buttoned in the middle part. So you can see a little bit of her stomach and her cleavage. Like that's cool. Fine. All good. But it's also kind of like, um, it also seems clipped. <gasps> oh my God. He's just trying to give her a geography lesson, for fuck's sake. Oh, 
I wonder how long he'd been sitting there. But to be fair, if I had that kind of knowledge and I could like shame a group of kids, I would have sat there for hours, days even. Anyway, so back to, um, to, to Julie's shirt. They've obviously pinned it like on the side so it kind of pulls a bit so you can you know see your stomach and your cleavage um but it's not that bushy on the back or it's not bunching up it's, look at it it's pulling so tight on her waist a suspect. open see again this is where julie and i would disagree i'd be like we're finding like i don't know barricading ourselves in the kitchen one way in one way out and someone's always on watch that would be my uh my guess or my my tactic no boat captain again People say a lot of exposition. on it. I do kind of love this. Yeah, spin around. Barricade yourself in the kitchen.
I mean, listen. Sometimes characters just deserve to die. Through their own ineptitude. If I was in a group of people who were probably being hunted, I would not let them wander off. Or I would be very suspicious if they did. Okay, now they're kind of taking my plan of attack. Um, oh. If only you were like Ray. <laughs> Just holding them in her fists. Your hair behind your ears. See, he has a plan. I mean, if they're closing down for the summer, you think they would have, like, gotten rid of some of that, like, foil-covered food? It's just going to spoil. Look at them with their little steak knives. So cute. So she's also coming from the uh, school of Jennifer Loves Hewitt's stab first, ask questions later. Um, but, you know, that's, uh, that's Jennifer Esposito for you. You know, everyone's stressed. It happens. Um, and uh, I... <laughs> so I've often wondered about the, the kind of role of Ray within this film and um, is to me as I was mentioning earlier he just seems to represent this kind of past life this this status quo life of like going back and living in this small town but you know hopefully doing it right not accidentally killing people um, but it, it's a very like heteronormative kind of life that he's setting out for himself and Julie and by him entering into the narrative, re-entering into the narrative to save the day, he's essentially affirming that way of life um, rather than the path that Julie was trying to make for herself, which was, you know, going to college, um, learning something, maybe political science, um, and, and, you know, not necessarily going back to that small town and doing something different with her life. Um, so 
you know, I, I've, I've always kind of struggled a little bit with this film and what it's saying about Julie's um, ultimate tie to this small fishing town and that even when she goes, you know, to a whole other resort, yeah, um, she's still she's still part of it. She's She can't escape it. All right, so we got Bad Blouse, Brandy, and Sporty Spice. Don't run up the stairs. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that we're kind of coming up to these like climax moments, and now we're just kind of from chase sequence to chase sequence, um, which is fine. But it's it's just kind of acting as a bit more of a, a set piece to set piece. So we're entering into a new. Um, so we are at this attic space. It's like, I know what you, or I still know what you did last summer, the video game. I would actually play that. I just said it out loud, and I would fucking play that. And I do not necessarily play video games because I'm not good at them. Not because I don't like them. I'm not good at them. Help her. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut, you know, give Julie a break and say maybe it's the PTSD causing her inaction. Let's say. Stab him. Oh, she somersaults away. Step on this, spread it, spread your steps around. And we will see her again, what, at the end of the movie? She's fine. She's taking a nap.
Yes, it's locked. Now, Carla disappears in a bit. She's, uh, yeah, again, haven't seen this since the book. Oh, God, I love this, the, the trope where you have, like, a huge thing of keys. And it's like, which one? I'm going as fast as I can. And so now he's like, I think this is where really the fisherman becomes more and more like a Jason or a Michael Myers. Um, just this slow walking kind of force of nature um, that is eventually going to come for us all. But in this case, it's coming after these kids. God, he's really going after a leg. Ah, yes, that storm shelter they mentioned earlier in the film. I mean, there's basically, like, no line in the first 40-odd minutes of this film that doesn't kind of infer something to happen in the second 45-odd minutes of the film. <gasps> No. Um, so I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to wait um, to bring this up until this reveal, in case anyone hadn't seen this um, or hadn't seen it in a while, uh, lest I, I avoid the, um, what I like to call the skeeting, as in the skeet all rich reveal of the boyfriend being the killer. Um, but ultimately, um, this is this is a kind of plot line that is pulled from. Huh. from Lois Duncan's um, book. Uh, I know what you did last summer, and, and it's something that I talked about in the first commentary where Kevin Williamson was talking about how the killer was kind of involved with 
different characters in the book, like Helen and Julie was dating him for a bit. And, um, and uh, it kind of comes back and, and Williamson said you know we couldn't actually have that person as the killer because you'd have to have them in disguises the whole time and it wouldn't really make sense so I like to think they utilized that plot point um, and kind of brought it into this film ah! um, as opposed to just aping on screen with the aforementioned skating but um, he, they maybe, maybe it's both you know like that meme why not both um, ah, help her. Run, Brandy. She's taking like all the falls. And I think there's something. Oh, why? I, uh, hang on. I. Ben's son? I think about this at least once a week. Hi, Dad. Um, Benson. Ben's son. I just, it's so stupid and amazing and stupid. And I just love it. Now, what I think is very in keeping with this 90s teen cycle and again when I uh, hey Ray um, when I was putting the book together and you know I was really kind of feeling like I had a book to write in this topic um, it was because there were so many DNA similarities between several of these films um, and you know there's a cultural climate that feeds into it there's a you know basic things that happen you know box office receipts to create a cycle um, I think there's also thematic elements that kind of start to present themselves and I, I do make a bit of a case for it in this book that girl power um, was quite a big thing in the 90s um, you know whether it was Riot Girl or the Spice Girls or you know or there was some kind of overall sense in youth culture that was refocusing on a very particular brand of white feminism most often um, rather than an intersectional feminism um, and I'm, I for one don't think feminism can exist with, without intersectionality nor should it but anyway 90s we were learning it was shit anyway kind of so one of the things I would I would put within this category of the 1990s uh, teens uh, horror cycle is these misogynistic rants. Um, and, and some of them are a bit more overt, as you might see in uh, like a scream. Um, and even this one, I don't think it's as overt um, as scream, but just when you had Will kind of saying, me, 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 uh, why is it always about you? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and fair enough, a lot of stuff in these people's lives seems to center around Julie James and 
Oh, now he killed his own son. Ben's son. Um, there is a rhetoric there that is a very direct anger towards a female character in this film. And um, often in the kind of final climax of this of these films, you will have... Here we go. Yeah, you will have the final girl fucking die. Um, you'll once again have the uh, final girl rectify, um, or at least answer that kind of very specific anger and that somewhat gendered anger that these um, killers will present to them uh, with a kind of finality. And, uh, you know, it is Julie taking the gun um, and answering the kind of question of pain, trauma, and PTSD. Now, seemingly, she should be relieved of it in some way because she has fully killed him. She has shot him a bunch of times. She's seemingly watched his body, you know, fall into the grave that was meant for her. Um, where was Carla during all of that? Don't worry. That's what I meant earlier. So Carla just kind of fell through a wall and then is about to be fine. Hey, I'm still here. I'm just a supporting character. Yeah, maybe you should have waited for him when you went on the trip. JK, I would never wait for him. I was lamenting this kind of life that Julie is um, seemingly destined for within this film. Not that there's anything wrong with living in a small town or, um, as they show here, buying a house, um, because it's a very beautiful house. There's just something a little bit like she was clearly trying to do something else and she couldn't get there. Something that saved her and, and, you know, she's... I think this film has a complicated relationship with its outcome for its heroine and that's okay. Also, something else I think a lot about in this film. <laughs> yeah, calm down, buddy. Guess he got that ring back. Yeah, so it's, it's, um, oh, hang on. <laughs> Sorry, I just, you'll see in a second. Um, it, it, but yeah, it, it has a rather complicated relationship with, I, I think it doesn't cl clearly identify what she wants versus what is 
destined for her and um it feels in some ways kind of reductive for the character but hey if you're happy you're happy right love this thing uh so i got an electric toothbrush a few years ago for christmas from my parents because i asked for one because my dentist recommended it Oop. uh door lock and every so often i'll be brushing my teeth at night and just look at it and be like i love this thing um but yeah and so i think it's interesting so that she's gone back to this town um, seemingly this town, it's what I think we're all led to assume. They've gotten this beautiful house. Uh, they're engaged. He's got an electric toothbrush. Things are on the up and up for them. And she's closing the window. She's locking the doors. She's doing all those things. And yet, as we are about to learn, even that is not quite enough. Um, we don't know what happened when they were rescued. They don't know if, you know, hey, it's those two kids who also have... Um, ties to a past case and is there something going on here we don't see that happen we don't see Julia Ray or Carla go you know what actually there was something else happened a year ago that um, this is all tied to rather they're all just kind of like cool this is great um, you know they moved on and uh, so we don't know how much they actually might have told the authorities and um, there's a sense like, that her trauma is repeating itself and the trauma can revisit itself in the form of, um, you know, Ben coming back or a character like Will entering their lives and causing havoc, or it could be the being consumed by her PTSD or as you know, we had in this film, some kind of combination of the two, but ultimately we have some, we have a character, at least one character, we don't see the interior life of Ray, um, who is traumatically consumed by the things that have happened to her and that she seemingly cannot grapple with, even though it's, it's meant that she should. She should um, own up to it. She should reveal the secret. She should do all these things. And, and we don't get that. Um, that's okay. I mean, not really, but uh, it's her trauma, and it's a trauma that you live with, and I think a lot of this film has to do with the lingering elements of trauma that we all, um, that many of us deal with, and that we all fight against so we aren't consumed by them. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's the film. That's another. That's um, the second one in the series. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope you had fun. I hope you were all keeping safe. Um, and doing what you need to do. Um, and yeah, keep letting us know if uh, you would like me to complete the trilogy. Um, I would be happy to. Just uh, let me know because I know you guys really enjoyed the first one. Hopefully this was worth your time as well. And um, yeah, everyone, take care. Don't get in the car with Freddie Prince Jr. Um Watch where your blouses are pinned um, and continue to have a really safe summer. Until next time, office hours are closed.